Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. This is a really interesting business that we're going to find out about today. Benny Rubin realized that email deliverability is a pain. Now, most of us, when we can't get our email out, we think, oh, I screwed up. Why is my email system not allowing me to email out, but they're allowing everyone else? It must be because the mail that I sent out stinks, and we just deal with it in shame. And... This guy comes out and says, you know what? This is an actual business here. If enough people have this problem, I think I could create a service where I fix it for them. And because email deliverability is directly correlated with profits for businesses, there's no question about how much I could deliver an upside for them. Killer. Let's stop everything. Let's build this business. And he did. The business is called Senders. The website we were talking about, maybe he needs to change it because it's senders.co, right? That's right. Senders.co. Senders.co. And I want to find out how he did this. And I can thanks to a company that I love. And it sounds like he loves it too. And so many of my guests do. No goofing around here. Gusto is a great, the best way to pay your people. Unless you're like an IPO company. We've seen people use them until they go to IPO. And then they say, I switched. I get it. If you're not IPO, if you haven't gone public, go to gusto.com slash Mixergy. All right. Benny, revenue. How much are you doing right now? Uh, so we've gone up and we've gone a little bit down. And then we've gone back up. As all entrepreneurs listening to this know that story. We went through a big transition over the last couple months. And through that transition, we had to shed some of our old revenue from the agency style business that we were running. And now we're doing more of the technical service side. So now we're bringing it back up, but definitely in the millions. Definitely haven't hit my goals of getting to 5 million and beyond. But if all things go well, maybe we can get there. Okay. I don't fully understand this. I thought it was all a service business. I pay your people, your people go into my software, whatever it is, Infusionsoft, ConvertKit, even if it's some of these direct mail systems that send out those cold emails, and you handle it. Isn't that the service? Is it more than that? Well, there's layers to the way email functions. Basically, email, as we all know it, is a, is a bundle of four different things, or maybe five things, depending on the way you think about it. There's domains like Mixergy.com uh, is a domain. There's an email address associated with the domain. There are IP addresses, which most people listening to this go, yeah, yeah, I think that's something that happens on the back end. I don't ever think about it. But there are IP addresses that are actually the sort of thing that's delivering the mail to the internet and sending it off. Then there's your DNS, which is the bits of code on the back of the website to say what's going on with things. That's where email authentication happens. Maybe you've heard of SPF, DMARC, DKIM, that kind of stuff. And then the fourth side is a sort of more abstract thing, but it's actually not, which is like the ratio. Like how are your emails actually doing once they go out? And that ratio covers many, many things. What's the text to HTML ratio inside your email? What is the number of emails that are going to be open versus not open? What is the number of them that are going to spam versus not going to spam? How many of them are being unsubscribed? All these things factor into ratio. And then the last one maybe is content, like what's in the email itself. Does that generally make sense? So okay. what Warranty was doing is looking across all of these and trying to figure out how to optimize them for our clients, many of whom are sending cold emails and many of whom are sending regular uh, consumer or newsletter style emails. Okay. Those cold emails are the ones that we get from people who will like say for me, I love I your podcast, you been listening forever. Can I get my guest on? Or I noticed that you use yeah. ClickFunnels. We have this tool that works with ClickFunnels. Yeah. Do you want to talk to someone? All those yeah. messages Those are cold out. emails. All right. Yeah, and those are the hardest ones. Those are the ones that create the most issues. And most of our clients these days are people that are saying, hey, we used to do cold emails in this way. Now it's gotten weird. Can you help fix it? And this is where the technical part comes in. We actually maintain IP addresses, which is the second thing I mentioned, remember domains, IP addresses, on behalf of our clients. See. And that is highly technical and you can automate parts of it, but it's really, it's still really service oriented, but it's also not dissimilar to what other larger service providers have to do in order to maintain email sending and quality. All right. Before we get into the business and how you built it and, and where it's going, you took some time off, which tells me the business was doing mm. well. You were probably cashing mm -hmm. out. You were maybe a little burned out from working. You seem like a guy who's been on for his whole life. What did you do in that time that you were taking off? Well, I think it's kind of funny uh -huh. because, I mean, I think business is it's supposed to be fun and it's supposed to be funny. And the reason why business is such an exciting thing to be involved with is not because of the rewards in the future for it, although we tend to fixate on those things, like how much revenue do you generate, things like that. I think what makes business fun is that it's sort of a rules-based simulation in a way. For example, all of our clients choose every month if they want to keep working with us or not. That's not really how it works with your neighbors. 
You don't just get to choose, oh, I don't want you to be my neighbor anymore yeah. unless you're going to move yourself. You don't get to do that with family. Almost everything that really is sort of intensely matters in your life, you can't really just be like, this was a great relationship till now, but my needs have changed. Goodbye. So I sort of enjoy those aspects of business. That said, in order to build a robust business, as you know, and I mean, how many interviews have you done now? Yeah, thousands. Thousands. The repetition is how you build strength and how you build businesses. When people come to me, I'm sure you get this too, people either come to you for like one-off mentorship sessions or you sort of have a relationship over time. Nine times out of 10, I'm just like, you just haven't had enough at-bats. That's why you don't really know what's up. You just haven't had enough at-bats. So I did so many at-bats because I built this single-handedly. I mean, I had a, a small team of people or whatever, but probably past $2 million in ARR doing 100% of the sales meetings myself, 100% of the onboarding myself, and not thinking, well, I'm at 20K or 30K or 40K or 50K or 60K or 70 or 80. This is the time where now I can pass it off to a salesperson. Okay. So when I finally was able to pass off almost all the key functions, and it was like April of, I don't remember what year it was now, but April of 2022, maybe. Hmm. What, what year are we now? 20, no, 20, yeah, 2022. 20, yeah, so 22, okay. 2022, I just said, I kind of had one of those things where all the email traffic died down and I was just like, okay, great. Now I have to figure out how to live. So I did the normal things. I did more traveling. I spent Meaning more time you had already, you, you, you did your at-bats, you got good at sales and then you systemize it. You pass it on to other people. They were running it. And yeah. eventually over time, you were getting called in less and less. The system was running and you said, you know what? Now I need to figure out how to live. And the reason you didn't know how to yeah. live was... What was your life like? Was it like mine where you were working constantly? Um, yeah, but it, I, keep in mind, I don't, I don't have the one of the beautiful things about work is that it can fill any amount of time you need it to. There are a lot of things in life that don't really work like that. You might love television, but after like watching two or three in a row, like I'm kind of done, right? With work, it's so dynamic and there's so many things you can do with it. So you can really pour a lot into it. I estimate, I'd have to run the numbers for real, but we can, we can be generous with my estimation. I estimate that to get to $2 million in ARR with my business and my business model that I was doing at the time took me maybe 1,000 hours of FaceTime with potential clients. Okay. So that's, I, I speak Japanese. I learned Japanese. I went to school in Japan. I estimate that I spent maybe two to 3,000 hours learning Japanese okay. to the level of fluency that I achieved. I play the violin. I play the viola. I went to music school. I have my degree in music. I probably spent two or 3,000 hours practicing the viola. So to do a 1,000 hour investment in a relatively short amount of time, that's an incredible amount of time. And I know some people can do this for years. Hmm. I'm just not that, not that strong. I just didn't have that. <laughs> so after around 1,000 hours of getting it to this point, I kind of looked around and was like, wow, it's not so bad that you invest the time, but you become a one pattern person. Okay. And I kind of needed to, to figure out if I was going to be a multi-pattern person or a one pattern person or what else was kind of available and going on. Okay. And so you took time off. That's a very thorough answer. So what'd you do in the yeah. time off? Well, I did a lot of nothing. I did a lot of travel, some traveling. I oh. did some thinking. I talked a lot with my friends. I played a lot of music. I hung out. I also helped my team. I, you know, I was available for mm -hmm. my team when they needed it. But I think I expected some sort of lightning strike to happen. Like, aha. Running an agency that helps other businesses grow, that's not my calling. Actually, I should be. But it, it didn't quite happen like that. My wife teases me about that because she, she just thinks it's funny that I sort of expected something to happen, but nothing really happened. Something could have happened, but it didn't. So <laughs> I, I kind of uh, ended up coming back. And the terms of me coming back and all the things are a slightly different conversation. But And partially you came back because emails going through a difficult period, especially the kind of email that you work on, and you need to come back and help steer the ship. All right, let's come back to this. Yeah. Take me to the beginning. How'd you know this was an issue that you had to get into business to solve? In 2020, we had already been running the agency for four years, helping companies grow their cold email outbound. By doing uh, cold email outbound for them. Yeah, doing cold email outbound for them. Just standard cold email outbound agency. Everyone's cycled through them. You today, it's with pretty them, common. There was a period when it wasn't. Today, it's fairly common. You hire people, and all they do is they write out email, and they send it out on your behalf. And then when yeah. there's someone who responds, they pass it on to a salesperson who deals yeah. with the 
with the yeah. customer. Great. Okay. Well, I've been doing cold email since 2013, 2014, 2016. I turned it into a business. There was maybe five or 10 other agencies that you could sort of point at and name at the time. Now there's probably a thousand. It's okay. It evolves. Things change. Mm -hmm. What changed is Google decided to start imposing their acceptable use policy. Mm -hmm. The first term of the acceptable use policy is thou shalt not use this for cold email or unsolicited bulk email or whatever language they want to use. And they sort of didn't really mind so much. Things changed. They started to clamp down, which meant that in the olden days, you could spin up an Apollo.io account, spin up an Outreach.io account, plug an email in, your regular corporate email, and start sending no problems. Now that started to be a problem. Now, we had solved that problem in 2020. Almost none of our peers and none of the SVPs of sales and all these SBDR leaders had even thought about this problem. So when this started to become a serious problem, maybe about a year ago, half a year ago, we were in pole position to help people solve this for themselves. Okay. And that's the reason why I, I came back and I... Because you had a solution that was better than others. Okay, I get it. Let me pause here for a second. I used to have people come into my office who were doing this kind of basically cold email, some would call it spam, where they were sending out emails and as soon as there was a response, they'd get on a sales call with that prospect. A lot of them were using fake email addresses from Gmail. They were just cycling through a bunch of them and I still see that happening. Is that not the way that they that people do things or they would get a, a new domain and do it? And are you saying that sometime in the early two, 2020s that stopped working? Well, let, I mean, I, I, I know Gusto's a, a sponsor so we can talk about ancient history, mm -hmm. one of the companies that truly built a billion dollar business through cold email and cold email alone famously is Zenefits. Mm -hmm. So what Zenefits did was they said, hey, there's a million businesses or whatever the number is that matter. We're going to cold email all of them. They were cold emailing from Zenefits.com or something similar, mm -hmm. maybe a subdomain or something, but they're emailing them from Zenefits. And the founder of Zenefits, who moved on, started another company that did something very similar called Rippling. They're also built, I get cold emails from them all the time. They're very, very aggressive with this. So we're not talking about some sort of offshore HR dev service that's sending you from a Gmail account. You're getting these emails from the corporate comp the corporate entity. It's a valid business. They're doing a valid pitch. It's from a real person. They're saying, hey, hey Andrew, this is our value proposition. Are you interested in potentially doing whatever? So these aren't the people who are coming over for Scotch Night at my office and we're cycling through Gmail addresses. They're using their real email addresses. They're reaching businesses. Okay, but when you started, you saw a problem. What did the problem look yeah. like back in 2016 when you launched Senders? So launching Senders was the process for running, setting up and running cold email was very difficult. Fast forward to 2020, even just getting emails sent became, whoa, we can't scale but you, you this. You keep fast forwarding Google me and I want to go back. Us. Don't fast forward me. Take okay, me back to the wanna, beginning. What I want to see is how you saw this okay. problem when a lot of other people were in the business and so, they were on the most clever side <laughs> spinning up 50 different Gmail yeah. addresses and thinking they solved it. And you ah. saw, no, this is a problem that I could build a real business in. What was that? Well, most, most of my friends ran SaaS businesses in 2016. So that's, this is sort of something important that I always end up bumping against. Founder market or founder product fit is really important. It's really a thing. I could not do what you do. If we swap places, I'd be gone. I'd be like, that was cool. Bye. I can't interview people all the time. They don't have that. I don't have that level of empathy. When I, I had a business before Senders that was a software business and we did not get very far. However, we made a lot of friends that were entrepreneurs. We did a, a very prominent accelerator. We did very well with our peers. So when I decided to shut down Senders, I turned to all my founder friends and I said, hey, what do you guys, what's going on at your company that you haven't really cracked the code with internally that you want help with? Mm. And a bunch of them said like, look, Cold email is this kind of weird jank thing that's like, uh, we don't really like it. We don't, it's not, it doesn't really work in the way we need it to. We want someone like you because we know you're going to, you focus on it and obsess on it. So that's how I started a cold email up on agency at all. It was sort of like by popular demand, so to speak. Okay. If they had said, hey, we have a design problem, I would have been like, okay, I'll find a creative director. Let me figure out how to, you know. But okay, that just so sort of you went to them, you the said, thing. what's a problem that you have that you can't solve? You looked at the ones that made sense to you and you said, okay, this is one that's close. I could do it. What was the first solution like? What did it look like? What did you create for them? All out-of-box software, Gmail accounts, all the standard stuff that you imagine. Not Gmail in the sense of it's like a gmail.com, but using their Google Workspace accounts. Hey, spin me up three new email addresses. We'll plug it into 
reply.io and we'll write some emails that we think approximate something good and go from there. And the issue that they were having was not just that they weren't getting email sent out. It was also they didn't know what to send. Is that right? They just wanted help yeah. with the whole thing. That's all. That's how it always is. Yeah. Early with all marketing stuff, people go, hey, we hear that people can do this well with email, but what do we say? What's weird? How do we handle all these? What does this reply mean? Really? You know, like that okay. kind of stuff. I mean, there's, it's, a, it's a whole world of, of a specific kind of mentality to really understand. It's a lot of writing. It's a lot of, a lot of writing, yeah. a lot of if then solutions, a lot of thoughts about follow up. Yeah. And there's the tech issue. You were doing, you were doing all the work yourself in these early days. In the early days, for many, for a long time, I had one assistant style person. Okay. And then it was you doing it, a lot of your friends. How did you then get the next batch of customers? I'm assuming you were cold emailing, right? I did a lot of cold email for cold email, and I get a lot of customers that way. But also, what I found a very specific kind of referral would come, a kind of referral I didn't know existed, I was getting referrals even from clients that my solutions weren't working for. Okay. And if you read the text of the emails, well, if it works, it works. And they go, hey, Benny's great. He helped me do this and you should work. I think that there's a kind of referral that I didn't know existed, but it's purely an operational excellence referral. The emails would say, hey, blah, I'm introducing you to Benny. He got me spun up with a solution for this really, really fast, really efficiently. It didn't quite work for me, but... And it's like, oh, wow. Okay, so you can win even if you fail, if you're very earnest and you close loops with clients and you communicate very thoroughly and very transparently. And that's a lesson that I've tried to carry through all the way through. When you so lack on transparency, when you lack on that kind of stuff, you, you sort of business can't really grow in the same way. Did you ask them for those introductions or did they just give it to you? Well, this is another thing that I think about a lot and I always try to recommend people think about if you think about yourself as an ecosystem player, like you're part of an ecosystem, and you, and you particularly focus on clients that are also parts of ecosystems, it's generally easier to grow through referrals. Okay. Meaning entrepreneurs, early stage entrepreneurs, seed stage sort of entrepreneurs, now they'd probably be referred to as pre-seed, but seed stage in general, tend to run in packs. Okay. They have all these common points. They okay. have the same Venture capitalists invest them, so they have a group of people that are in this community. Maybe they went to YC, so they have these thousands of YC companies, Y Combinator, that are part of them. So I focus on early stage startups, and early stage startups spread information across. They always spread information across. Yeah. Someone posts up, hey, we need help with this. And they go, hey, this guy helped me. It was very efficient the way they ran it. And so that became the way that you grow. So yes, referrals, largely unsolicited. I never really have gotten into the business of asking clients for referrals very earnestly and directly. I know that there's value in that, and I'm sure you could build a really great process around it. And that's one of those things I always push down on my to-do list. But I found that we get enough referrals and we've always gotten enough referrals that uh, it didn't wasn't like a burning need. So you weren't asking them, but they would make referrals. Even if you didn't solve their problem, they would refer you to someone else. And then yeah. you also had your own emails going out and some of them would lead to sales. That's where you got your customers. Yeah, I'd say that's accurate. Yeah. And keep in mind, I grew to almost $2 million in ARI without a website, without a brand name, without anything. I just said BennyRubin.com and it had five words on it. It was like, I help companies scale cold email. That's it. And like, that was it. And then when I started to add team members, they were the ones who said, hey, it's kind of weird. Can you like actually have a brand name so then I can say I work for this company. <laughs> so I read a little process and I was like, I like the name Senders. Like, let's go with that. And that's how we ended up with the name. I, you know, I like not having a site or just having a personal link because it feels more like you're hiring the person who can solve it. And mm. not a lot of people can hire the person because otherwise they get overextended. And so it makes it more special. It makes it harder to, to get access to. And I'm a big believer in stuff like that, in, in a non-website start or a website that even says what Mixergy said in the beginning, which was by invitation only, and that's all you saw, which made it feel more special when you were invited back when I was doing events. I think that th that's a really, I think that there's something, look, so much of business is like pufferfish and like showing that you're big and like, look how great we are. And sometimes that, I'm sure there are industries where that really makes sense. but I. 
I, I know this sounds like a funny thing to say, but I only started posting on social media like maybe two months ago. I didn't post maybe a tweeted once since like 2010. Um, so people always tell me all these things. People always tell me that's a little bit like funny to say, but people always say, oh, I, I would, I'm going to do this, but I need to do this and this and this first. And I'm like, really? Like, so in my view, it was like every day that one of the best pieces of advice I ever got about building business was if you're not doing three meetings a day with people that could potentially be your client or lead to someone that could be a client, the day you kind of fail. Huh. I mean, I'm not okay. Saturdays. We don't need to get silly with that. No, no, I get it. That's a, good, every, that's a good benchmark. If you're not doing three meetings a day with someone who could potentially be your customer, you failed the day. That's what I feel. Yeah. Okay. So my thing was, okay, if I fail to do the three meetings a day, maybe I do need a brand. Maybe it can't just be the Benny show, right? right. Like maybe right. then you really do have to do something. But I kept consistently like, okay, well, three meetings a day. All those wouldn't close, mind you. I mean, I'm not some sort of weird, crazy maniac that's selling, uh, you know, sunscreen, um, uh, you know, on the, on the beach. 102 degree weather or something. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you can tell it's getting winter time and it's looking Brooklyn for a years for that like, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, hey, well, you know, maybe next week I'll worry about brand because I just signed another client and I want to devote my energy to helping them and on and on and on and on. Okay. And people would email me back and be like, hey, maybe you should put some information on your website. And I'm like, why? Set up a call with me. I'll tell you everything you want to know. So all this sort of brand stuff is very, it's relatively recent. But I also understand the value of brand. I'm not saying there's something wrong with it. I just didn't find that it was something I needed. What did you say that got people on a call with you? What worked? I always like very explicit explanations, very clear explanations of what happens, okay. like what's done, what decisions are made in general. I find that, that that typically is what is the nicest. I think that okay. the ones where you sort of wave your hands and say, uh, there's something mysterious that you'll have to know to talk to me. People aren't, the people that are attracted to working with my company aren't interested in. I think part of the reason why we have so many clients and we always have is that we're very, very transparent, meaning we can make decisions on your behalf, but we'll also involve you in all the decisions if you want to be. So if you're a technical person or a detail-oriented person, you like that kind of relationship. So bringing that into cold emails and bringing that into conversations, and that's honestly what I hope from anyone who listens to this, I want them to think, I don't know if we're having a problem with deliverability. Maybe we are. Let's set up a meeting with these guys because at least we'll get a straight answer and and that's what we need. Was it that, that kind of con consultative approach? Like, I've done a bunch of email. If you want me to help you think through how to do yours better, let's get on a call. Or was it more like, I do a service where I increase your your deliverability and closing via email. If you Let's get on a call to see if you want to hire me. I actually go, I, I think that things should be even more detailed if you can which is we, what we care about, what, look, what, it actually, what we actually do is sort of an interesting way, I think, to get people in the door. I find that sales calls don't go that well in general. If someone comes and they say, okay, well, what do you do exactly? I'd rather them say, okay, I know all the pieces on the chessboard. I've tried to put them together myself, but I couldn't quite get them to fit. Walk me through how you, your team helps me get them to fit. Got it. Does that make sense? Yeah, you want to so you want I, them to know there's a problem and get on a call with you to see how you would solve the problem and evaluate you. Right. It's that straightforward, and that's the beauty I think of this business that it is salespeople doing sales sales emails. You're coming in and you've got a way to either grow them or you don't. And if you do, let's hear it, and it's worth paying for. And if you don't, then we'll know pretty quickly. But I oh yeah. not looking for consultation. I just want to I want results. I always joke that. No one really goes to like the knee doctor unless you have like a knee problem. Mm -hmm. Like I, I just, I mean, I don't know any knee doctors myself, but you can imagine no one goes like, yeah, I want to schedule an appointment with you. My knee's great. It's working great. Right. I just wanted to, it was like, something must be amiss. All of my calls now are people who have something amiss. Something's off. Hey, we used to get 43% open rates. Now it's 27% and we haven't changed that much else. We used to have six senders sending X amount, and now we can't even send Y amount. Why? What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Okay. And then we present our solution. Like, this is how we approach this problem, or here's the particulars of your situation that we think we can work, and here's what we do, and here's what you do, and everything, et cetera. And a, lar a, a surprisingly large number of people are excited and just like, oh, yes, okay, we want you, let's work together on solving. No, Benny, I and guess I would have thought, thought for you it would have been different. I would have thought that for you it would have been a situation where someone says, I'm getting great results from this. It's already our best channel. 
if you could just get us another 5% increase, we're great. Show us what to write, show us how to get more deliverability, but it's not that. I I don't disagree that that is the genesis. I see that as a problem. You see that as a vitamin, but I see it as a pain. Why? Because if they could just push it 5% more, they would. What happens is they push it and it doesn't happen. Okay. So now they're going, wait a minute, something happened. I thought if I just increase my sending volume, better results are. Something's up. Yeah. Something's, Something's amiss. And then they come to me. Because if you push the volume up and it goes, hey, you don't don't talk to Benny. You don't waste your time. Why would yeah. you even talk to the team? You know what I mean? So I feel like there's like two sides of it. For example, my own business, if you were a business coach, you'd say, well, what? why haven't you guys hit $5 million a year or whatever the target is yet? And I, it's not for lack of trying, right? That's how it always business always is. It's like, what is the, what is the, what are the inputs and what are the outputs? And sometimes they correlate directly and sometimes they don't. So when it comes to email, if your input is more and the output is less, something's wrong. So then they come to us to, to, to try to explore if it's a sending problem, is it a delivery problem? Is it uh, something in between? And we do our best. You got to $2 million in sales without Mm -hmm. other people, without a website. How much of that was profit? Yeah. So an interesting thing happens when you build agency-style businesses. I let my profit go. So I hit a pretty good amount, maybe, I don't know, 50 60% gross profit, that kind of area, which is not weird. Then I needed to staff up. And that's where you can quickly diminish profit margins. And with an agency-style business, no matter how good you are, folks churn away from you, especially if you're working in this kind of space. They turn away from you because, hey, we tested email through and through. We decided it's not something we want to invest in. That's an okay reason. Hopefully, they're not churning because they're dissatisfied in some way with this specific service. So you have these churn events. And if you bulk up on people, if a churn event happens, your profit margins decrease rapidly, as you can imagine. So you start with healthy margins. Certain numbers of things happen that are negatively impact your business, you have quarters that don't hit your goals or whatever, then your profit margins start to shrink. So I'm not sure the average profit margin over the lifetime of the business, but we tried to keep it healthy most months. Some months we've gone into the red, but in general, fine. I mean, no venture, no outside capital, no debt, nothing like that, because we just don't really need it. Okay, let me do a sponsorship for Gusto. What do you know about Gusto? How come everyone knows so much more about it than I do, it feels like? What do you know about them? What do I know about Gusto? I know firsthand that running payroll benefits, all that stuff is quite a pain and it's probably more technical and takes more clicking and everything than one would imagine. So I also know that there are a lot of solutions and there are also legacy solutions like Trinet and things like that or that kind of category. I call them, yes. That people want to transition away from. I've used a bunch of them. It was one of those solutions. I used the one that was built into QuickBooks. I used a competitor, one that you mentioned earlier. I used a ton. The problem I always had was there was something that didn't work out. And then I felt it was my fault because I don't have the head for this stuff, which I don't. I don't love it. Meanwhile, the people who are most valuable to the company, the ones who work with you all the time, are impacted by this if the payroll doesn't happen quickly or if it's not clear what they're supposed to get paid or if you're fiddling around with different documentation or if you need to make a last-minute payment and it's on you to make a payment to them and you can't stand going to the software, so you put it off for a little bit, it's a pain in the neck. So I've used it, right? You're nodding. Anyone who knows this knows that's the pain. Those are the issues. And then, of course, there's taxes where you need to figure out, what did I pay these people? I want to know a report. If I'm, if I'm happy with someone, I want a quick report. How much do I pay them? If I'm not, I want a quick report. I want the same for contractors, W-2. The beauty of Gusto is it's super simple. You can start it if you're just paying one person. You could build it up all the way up. I've had people use this and then they apologized to me in the, in the interview because they said, look, once we went public, we needed a different, more robust system. I get it. It'll take you all the way to that scale and make it beautiful for you and your team. I was going to say employees, but it contractors too, and make it great for your team too. This is such a good time of year to switch your payroll and benefits service provider that I'm doing a bunch of ads for them. And I want everyone on here to go and at least try this for free. Go use the software yourself for a moment. And you're going to understand why this is what your team is going to be happy to use. This is what you're going to be happy to use. Go to gusto.com slash Mixergy, M-I-X-E-R-G-Y, gusto.com slash Mixergy, and see how easy and beautiful it can be 
to take care of your people. Benefits, payroll, easy. You mind if we talk for a second about Gusto? Yeah, let's do it. I think like early stage entrepreneurs, because I consider myself very early stage. I think that a lot of people listening, because I used to listen to this podcast when I was just getting started with business years ago. And I remember thinking like, wow, if you get to $20,000 a month in revenue, holy heck, like that must be unbelievable and amazing. And I built my first business and I sold it. Thanks. No, it's, it's no smallest part to the advice that I'm sure I got from your, this very Thank podcast. You. I think that companies, founders, early stage companies completely underestimate the upside to investing very, very early on in a platform like Gusto mm -hmm. and other tools that you start. Well, I mean, all I just pay them over transfer wise, like or wise.com. Right. Like, what's the big deal? That's fine. Or I just do this. I just do that. I just do that. And the second you actually have a professional process in place or you want to up your game or someone says, hey, can I get a and you're like, a what? Ooh, and you're Googling around and you end up at a place like Gusto and the tools mm -hmm. that that Gusto and potentially other companies, but Gusto is the one on topic provide are they're actually the way that you level up your business. They're actually the way you level up your employees, access to information that they need about what's going on. That's the place where you onboard. It can be where you onboard, where you offboard, where you do all these things that are really necessary. And all those things add up to giving you a way to reduce your cognitive load, systems of record. And systems of record allow more room and space for your clients, for your approach to marketing, all these things that really are indispensable. You know, the challenge so is... All a yep. lot of this type of software is just such a pain to integrate. I'll give you an example, just so it doesn't look like I'm just talking about Gusto. One of the things that it's, that's a challenge is project management. You get clients, yeah, sure. you need good project management software. You could easily get by with nothing but your own, frankly, whatever is built into the iPhone, the reminders app, if it's just you and one customer. Once you have multiple customers and you need some way for them to interact with you and then for you to keep track of what needs to get done for them, it's a pain. What it, and so people put that off. What did you use for yourself for project management? My team has tried many, many different tools. And I would say that this people listening and now here in 2023 sliding into 2024 are going to probably make fun of me inside their brains. I even resisted Slack for my team for a long time. And the reasons are, I'm not even going to the details as to why, but I basically was just like, you know what, we'll use yeah. other tools like this is fine. I found, and this is a tool, this isn't, they're not, I'm not sponsored by them in any way, but I found them to be the best tool that I needed for my business, whether I had, when I had two people, when I had five people, 10 people and beyond, it's a tool called Missive, M-I-S-S-I-V, missiveapp.com. Are you familiar with them, Andrew? No, I'm looking them up right now. Um, it's a team up in Canada. They're very nice people. They're very responsive. They build features all the time. They're really excellent. I've done a testimonial for them uh, just a few months ago, which I, I'm really happy about being able to support them. It's a shared inbox tool. You might be like, shared inbox, like, come on, do you really need that kind of thing? Look, clients have every right to email you. They have every right to Slack connect you. They have every right to do all the things that clients do to try to get your attention and get the support and help that they need. What Missive does is it gets rid of all the CC, BCC kind of issues that come with emailing. So for example, I'm CEO and founder. Sometimes people just like to email me. Yeah, they, they can't think of their account manager in the moment and they send a note to Benny. Right. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't yeah. want to discourage from doing that. Oh, by the way, Manuel is your account manager. Please. Yeah. Underneath the email through the whole thread, I can just tag Manuel. Manuel can just jump in and reply as Manuel or my assistant can write an email reply as me mm -hmm. that I can then approve, share drafts, all these things. So it's a layer on top of email that really helps. I found for a long time that project management software wasn't what I needed. I needed almost like ticket management without like tickets. You know what I mean? Like you're a number one, one, three, three, five, 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 like without all that stuff. So I sort of approached every individual task as like a, a ticket. And then the other thing that I think oftentimes happens is you you need to always be thinking about your rapport with your own clients. Almost every single failure of a client leaving dissatisfied was due to lack of rapport. And so sometimes tools can create distance between you and a client. It can hurt your rapport. Like they think I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to a, a thing, and I don't want to talk to a thing, I want to a human. And sometimes tools can build rapport. And sometimes it really makes sense to ask clients, like, welcome to be a client. And they get an invite for some tool and they're like, oh, okay, whoa. But sometimes 
that conversation can lead to better rapport. Hey, we use a tool. We use Asana. Do you want to use Asana with us? If you do, we're happy to onboard you in Asana. We're happy to show you how to use it. We're happy to show you how this can build rapport. And so all the failures that I see in my own business and management have been from me not having the confidence to have a rapport-based tool conversation with clients to really match them where they are. Now we have Slack Connect with some clients. Obviously, we do email. Missive is a layer on top of email, so we can fluidly share things amongst clients with email. That's, that's sort of where my mind's at usually with these, these things. So you're thinking... If they like email, I'm not going to introduce them into Asana. If they like Slack, I'm not going to force them to email me. You just will go wherever they want to go? Oftentimes, we just go wherever the client wants to go. Now, if you're going to systematize really seriously, I mean, we've never had 100 clients at the same time. I think the most we ever had at one time was maybe 80 or something. Now we have somewhere around 70, I think, 70, 70 to 80 range, individual companies that are our clients. You create overhead by creating tickets that then get passed around and sort of checked off. From a client's perspective, at least with our clients, almost all of the changes that they want made, they, it's conversational. For example, a client just emailed us the other day. They said, hey, we want to increase our sending volume from 20,000 emails to 36,000 emails, and we want to cycle this team member off and cycle this team member on. Like, that's a weird, okay, create a ticket. Go to Jira, create it. It's like, like uh, that's a little bit weird. So, if we when we use a account, a project manager like Asana and stuff, we like prefer it internally. Like, hey, sling it to us. We know how to structure the ticket so it gets done internally. Or if it's a spot thing, like I'm going to go in and do it. Great. So it's done. The the sort of receipt is sending the client and you know back saying, thanks so much. Got the note. This has been completed. One of our core. One of the core things that I was talking about with the team, I call it closing loops. There's a million ways to say it, but I call it closing loops, which is you do the work and then you tell the person that the work is done. Yeah. Basically, you close the loop. I feel like if the loop is closed and there's some record of it being done, do we really need to have it logged in another way, in a very particular way? No, unless it's something that has very direct ramifications for later, and then you should have it logged in a very particular way. So I'd say... I like the kind of business where clients feel like they can fling stuff to us in any, in any way and shape they want. Sometimes if it gets out of hand, you need to corral them, but that's a rapport conversation, right? Hey, you send me a lot of WhatsApp messages. Would you mind just like doing it a different way? And the client's like, oh yeah, sorry. When I think of it, I want to send a note. Okay. I get that. But hey, I have a new WhatsApp. It's a business WhatsApp and that goes straight into Missive. I mean, I don't have one, but I could do that because Missive allows you to have WhatsApp that goes straight into your- Really? No client. Mm -hmm. But Slack will still go into your Slack if they're Slacking you. Yeah, if you want Slack to go into Slack, sure. If it's Slack Connect, then it'll come into your Slack. Sure. Yeah. But then with Slack, at least Slack Connect, you could have your assistant or a team member that's not you ben. join it. And then you could set notifications and be like, if you tag Benny directly, Benny will see it. If you don't tag Benny, then he might see it. Yeah. Which is also just rapport, right? You tell your clients, hey, here's our rules of Slack. Are you cool with these rules? If you violate these rules, I'll remind you a few times. But you know, tell me more about rapport. rapport. People are not hiring and keeping uh, agencies because the work they're doing is good. It's because they have rapport. What do you mean? Well, I have this, I've noticed this phenomenon after working with hundreds of clients. And I wonder, honestly wonder if your readership has noticed a very similar phenomenon. When clients need to or want to leave your agency or whatever service you're doing, there's like a magical tripping point where they switch from being on your side of the table to being on the opposite side of the table. There's a tone shift. There's something that sort of feels like, oh, wait, we were working towards shared goals and now we're working against each other. Yeah. And for a long time, and this is with my company when I was in my 20s and everything, I would just sort of be like, okay, something changed. Hey, something changed. It's fine. You can move on. No problem. Happy to process your cancellation or whatever you want to frame it. But nowadays, I'm much more interested in proactively having hard conversations with clients. And when they do a move that's clearly the opposite side of the table, actually having a hard conversation with them and saying, hey, we used to be on the same side of the table. I feel like we're not. Let's talk through what's going on. Nine times out of 10, they're very clear about what happened, what changed. A lot of time it has nothing to do with your service or anything. They say, 
yeah, we have a new VP and he's really, or she's really this or that, or, Hey, you know, the ROI didn't really pan out in the mm. way we need to, or we had to move the goalposts and now you're in the midfield. You're not near the goal at all. And nine times out of 10, it actually can be corrected by renegotiating all of the terms. You just say, okay, whatever agreement we have now, whatever money you're paying, whatever services, let's put that all the way to the side and let's pull one in back one by one. Okay, what about this that we were doing? Do you still want us to do that? No. Okay. Interesting. Re reform, refactor. And honestly, I didn't know this before. I thought, mm, something's weird. Okay, well, there are a lot of fish in the sea. I'm going to move on to new clients right. and not devote energy to someone that doesn't want to work with me. And now I sort of have a more of like, well, how do we end up on the opposite side of the table? Because we've this, we vibed for a long time. Like, what's up? You know? So anyway, I, I find that rapport is really like the, the answer to this. And I'm every chance I get, every client I talk to directly, I'm I'm consciously trying to ask hard questions like, are we still working together? Are we still on the same side of the table? Has anything material changed in your business that we should know about? Are we meeting or exceeding your expectations? What did we totally crap out on that upset you? I don't know. But as I get older, maybe I have a higher tolerance for having someone tell me, everything's changed. This will probably be our last month working together. <laughs> and you're like, oh, wow, damn, okay. Um, I heard Greg Eisenberg's podcast where he was talking about how he runs his agencies and he said, we do temperature checks routinely. I should probably ask him, but what do you guys yeah. in consulting businesses mean when you say temperature checks? How do you do that? I, I have... I simply think about, I, I consider it hard questions. That's just the words that I use for it, hard questions. I had a friend many years ago who's now a venture capitalist, super interesting guy, who said, hey, Benny, you've ever heard the expression, hard questions, easy, hard conversations, easy life, easy conversations, hard life. And I remember just, I just threw it in the rubbish, like with the protein bar I was eating, whatever. I was just like, yeah, whatever, another one of those stupid phrases. And then it sort of crept back to my consciousness soon after. And I was just like, oh, man, that's really interesting. So I literally carried that. And I said, OK, I, I think I took like a post-it note and I wrote like hard questions and I like stuck it to my computer monitor or something. And I just said, OK, every conversation I'm in, what is the hardest question I can ask? So I just tried always to ask the hardest question I can ask. Oftentimes, you don't need to ask hard questions. It's a team member you've been working with for a while and it's all fine. You get on a call with a client you haven't talked to in a little while, or you've seen some bumps along the way and worked with them. So for me, it's just like, what's the hardest question I can ask? And sometimes I'm surprised at the question I ask, and sometimes I'm not. Sometimes it's just like, is this ROI positive for you at all, even theoretically? Is the channel even something that you care about? If you think about three months from now, are you still paying us every month? Or how many months in the last three months have you thought, ah, I really wish I wasn't paying these guys? Those are hard questions, I think. So I think those are temperature checks, probably, where it's just like, is this a sick relationship or a, or a healthy relationship? But yeah. you know. Okay, that is a hard one to ask. You don't, but you don't have hard, do you have hard conversations with your clients' partners or you don't need to? Is that the, that's the secret to the Andrew Warner life? Is, is, so uh, if you're no talking hard, about sponsors, hard. it is very hard. I was thinking about um, earlier this week, Pipe drive. I loved pipe drive. I loved it so much. It was in my book as a key part of how to organize interviews and frankly, any sales process. It really sucked that it didn't deliver the results that they were looking for and they canceled. And I think I should have just gotten, well, I don't know. They, I was thinking, I was going to say I should have gotten on a call with them and understood how many customers did they get, why maybe it didn't work, and maybe had a follow up Never afterwards. Too late. In reality, it probably just didn't work. Like maybe they got none. And my sponsors are pretty good about telling me how many leads they get. But the opportunity you missed was you didn't get the blow by blow inside their company. Mm. The, the path to deciding that it didn't work. Because we use Pipedrive. I love Pipedrive. So good. Those are great people. Great people too. Yeah. And my guess is that their company culture is also very generous and sharing. That's the vibe I get from their software. I, I've, I have met the founders before, but I don't, and they were very nice people, but it's not something that I can speak for individual members of their team. I think it's a toss up whether you would have learned something or been kind of like, okay, that makes sense. But it's also possible that 
you could have had another shot. Why? Because they said, you know, we really want to focus on this other new feature set. And, mm. and you went live or whatever you did with them after we'd already shifted our focus. So, or something like that. Like there's right. always some interesting layer to the story that makes you go, oh, interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, I would even think that doing a follow-up, like getting to know the person better who's responsible for the ads and then doing follow-ups after. So it's not even about how my ad performed, but in general, how are ads performing for you on podcasts? And then it's possible that I would have discovered that podcasting is just not the right medium for them. I, I don't see them on podcasts, so maybe that's what it is. Or maybe they realize that, you know what, this whole SMB business is not really right for them and they needed to go somewhere else. And so that ongoing conversation would have revealed that. Um, and that's where I, the, where I would spend more time. You're the, you're the star of the show. I found that hard conversations have, can have a similar effect, even if it's not the star of the show. Meaning almost anyone from my mm. org having a hard conversation with someone and even just, hey, I had a conversation with da-da-da because he said da-da-da and da-da-da happened. It can have a very positive effect on the relationship. Now, as founder, CEO, or whatever position, the highest position, there is obviously more gravitas and whatever, and you have more levers to pull to correct the situation. So it's not saying that you could easily replace yeah. that. But usually people just want to have the hard conversation. Yeah. There are instances where you go at it to try to have a hard conversation and they really are just like, oh, you're trying to sell me to keep me engaged in something I don't want to be. So you could face resistance too. So it's not like it's always goes smoothly and like you, the magic words are hard questions and then they, they open up to you in a magical way. And No, it's, it's worth doing right. even if it fails. It's just to keep the relationship going. And like I said, you learn a lot. And frankly, Gusto. The woman who called me back up from Gusto, we had turned them down a long time for sponsorship because we were just so packed. And then we kept saying, it'll come, we'll, we'll clear it up. And we did. And she ran some ads. She's not at Gusto anymore. She's a convert kid. But because we had a relationship with her, when she knew that the team at Gusto needed more spots that would be effective, she said, Look, let me go back to Andrew. And she personally, even though she's not with Gusto, she personally reached out and we just closed it and then she took care of it we, with the Gusto team. We get that. We've gotten quite a few of those very recently. People say, I've, we've, I think there's been two calls in the last three weeks that were someone set up the call, joined, and then that person goes, I don't work at the company anymore, but I still really like them and I still want to support them. And I talked to them about this or that. And I remember, and I'm like, yeah, okay. So it's kind of interesting where it's like, they, they like join the call because it's fun, which is a whole different thing. I mean, I, I feel like most sales calls are more boring than they need to be. And any shred of entertainment that can be bringing to a sales call should. So sometimes people will just tag along on a call to sort of watch the action as I like diagnose their, their email deliverability problems on the you spot. Know what? There's a tool. I was looking it up. Pep Laya did this in his podcast with the founder of User Gems. They tell you when the people who are your clients have moved to another company. So that, yeah. first of all, you're aware that you need to build a relationship with the new people, but also you can just check in on them and see, are they using a tool like yours at this company? It's such an interesting, uh, it's such an interesting it company. Is, user Gems is very interesting and that's, it's very valid. I think that there's like a golden period when people join positions where they're getting their bearings and they're sort of asking like, you know, why don't we have one of these? And everyone's like, yeah. oh, that's a thing? You're like, yeah, last three companies had one of those. Yeah. Like, why don't we? And then it, it, everyone's like, well, you're the expert. You're the one who used it for the last three times. What do you? And then at that moment, you get an email yeah. from <laughs> someone. You know? But I, I think there's something really beautiful about expertise that people accrue over time mm -hmm. and how the context of work changes so dramatically what the job is. So people, for example, someone might say, I was at a company and we did a thing with you years ago at a very, very small scale when you were smaller scale and it worked really well. Now we're much, much bigger scale and someone mentioned you and I didn't think because you were so small scale all those years ago, but now you're actually the big scale that we need, right? Like, so the, their job context changed and you've changed. So it almost makes sense to always be thinking about how to reintroduce yourself. Yeah. Sort of stones and sort of reaching out to your community and like letting them know what's different, what's changed. We get clients that come back now that say, you guys still doing cold email? And we say, 
yeah, are you guys still an agency? Like, we run cold email for us? Well, no, we're really focused on deliverability. I'm like, oh, good, because that's the exact thing <laughs> that we need help with, because we don't need your help writing emails. We already have a marketing team and all this stuff, but we're just having trouble with the sending and delivery, and we knew that you guys were good at that. We're like, ah, uh, yes. All right, speaking that's of cool. that, Google sure. made a big change recently. I don't know what yes. it is, but you were prepared for it, and I don't know why you were so prepared. What happened before that got you to be almost like you've said to me, digital preppers? What happened before? <laughs> And then how did that uh, help now? I don't know. There's like a really clever expression that people say. It's like, uh, you know, America farts and like rainforest dies or something. Like Google's obviously this huge player. I'm old enough. You're probably old enough to know when Google made that SEO change. We all had friends that just completely lost all their traffic. Some people had to shut their whole businesses down because Google just said, hey, we're making a few small changes. We're going to be prioritizing this over that and that over that. And everyone said, oh, really? And then the day the change happened, traffic through the floor. And other people, huge winners. Hey, we were buried in Google for years, and now we're at the top of the thing. Like, wow, our business is great. So Google has long been making moves, both overt and subtle, to try to get people to stop using their email systems to send unsolicited emails. Mm -hmm. And they have a lot of tools in their toolbox. One of them is they actually suspend your account if they feel like you're using email inappropriately. And that's a very common thing. And it's becoming more and more and more common. And even in 2020, when we started to shift, we shifted everything off of Google, we were already seeing that like tick up and up and up. And we said, we're a professional organization. We don't want to have to flag down the admin from our, you know, they get an e notification being like, blah, 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 user was suspended, right. fix something. Right. Very jarring, very upsetting. Yeah, very, so I said, look, we're not going to deal with that anymore. So it was very visceral. Like it just seemed like a bad experience for our clients to have to drop everything and help us out. So when we shifted using IP, IP addresses, IP pools, and really understanding the mechanics of this to make it work without using Google, that inadvertently prepared us. The most recent changes Google is making, which are very timely, I think they're going to affect in February, don't have to do necessarily with the sending side, they have to do the receiving side. So what they basically said if, is, if you, Mixergy, sends emails and three out of a thousand of the people who receive your email within a 24-hour period market as spam, we're gonna assume that something's weird, off, not right, and we're going to limit the number of emails that we deliver to our users from you. So that's the change that they made. They made some other changes too, but they made very clear recommendations on how you should handle this, how you should understand it, how you should contextualize it. But of course, the reaction that people have is much bigger and scarier, and it's also unique to their own circumstances. So we're spending a lot of time talking with clients, working with people that come through, that are saying, how does it relate to me? And then we can help them through that process of understanding it because we've already been in this game of avoiding pissing off Google for so long that avoiding pissing off Google is sort of second nature to the way our company thinks about email in general. How could you? How could you get past it? So Google is, is a fascinating company. They, how, do, you, do you think a lot about email? You have people on your team that, that think about email and email delivery and I'm just curious, like where, where it sits in your... It's not at all an issue for me when I think about me sending out email from my personal account, because if I'm sending out an email to solicit someone, it's not that many, it's not a problem. Sure. And, there's a, and I warm up the relationship before I ask. For the email newsletters, it's a pain in the butt. I think about it so much that I just stop sending out email. The system that we use is such a pain. If people didn't hear from us in a while, we can't email them. It's, I'll say the name. I hate them. It's... I shouldn't say I hate them. It's Infusionsoft. I don't like them. They're now called Key. Yeah. Um, and I do feel like a jerk for even sending out email to my own list. And then they block certain people, which I get. And so, yes, I do think about it a lot. I've earned the right to reach sure. some of them. Some uh, to, I've earned the right to reach them all. They've asked for it. And some of them I can see are really close friends, like Kareem Mine. I've interviewed him. I've known him for over a decade. He is someone I can't send email to, not because he hit spam, but because the software service provider that we're using is so scared of of a spam issue that they won't let me email him. So yeah, I definitely think about yeah. it. Yeah. So there, that kind of story upsets me on a visceral level. And the reason why it upsets me on a visceral level is email is an open thing. It's baked into the fabric of the internet. 
you have opt-in permission to send these emails. There's no reason why you shouldn't be able to send the emails that you want to send. There's no reason why you shouldn't be able to bear the risks associated with sending emails, whether it be bounces or whatever. The number of like abstract layers that sit on top of sending email is oftentimes too many, meaning you click send on Infusionsoft. I don't know how Infusionsoft works on its own, but are they providing the IP addresses? Do they have someone else who's providing them IP addresses? Who's the admin that gets to decide what the threshold is? for? So oftentimes folks just need our help to switch off of systems like that so they can expose more of the stack. They can have an understanding of what's going on in their email with it, with their deeper, deeper level. Maybe there's, there's a whole host of things. It, it gets a little bit unfun, like pretty fast and people kind of, their eyes. Yeah, truthfully, even when you gave me the floor in the beginning of the interview, I was like, oh my God, this is how he's going. It's going to be tough for anyone to follow. <laughs> well, yeah, you can tell what my conversations are every day, all day, right. every day. It's, it's IP addresses, email systems, et cetera. But what all I was going to say is that the, the reason why I asked that is that if you send an email and you get a notice back that says, hey, we didn't deliver this email. That's an email server doing you a solid. They're like, oh, hey, buddy. Like, yeah, we're not going to deliver this. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay. Google doesn't send any notices back. They don't send any notices back. What they do is they add it to like a number and like a database, and then they give you a tool that you have to sign up for called Google Postmaster Tools. And then if you go to that tool and then you authenticate your domain. I didn't your, know. Okay. And and then you look, then they'll tell you what percentage of people marked your email as spam in any 24-hour period. No more information, no less. That's it. So what Google said is, hey, we have a new rule. It's a 0.3% rule. The only way for you to know your number is to go use Google Postmaster Tool. Okay. It's like a weird thing that Google gives you the rule and they tell you how to not violate the rules. Okay. And that's sort of the 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 secret to this is like actually reading the words that Google publish about their new rules. But still, I don't get it. If there's if your clients are sending out cold email out yeah. of a thousand, how do you avoid having three? The only thing I could think of is you have to basically have a bunch of IPs, a bunch of email addresses, a bunch of everything so that you could pretend you're sending out fewer than a thousand, maybe 999 through each one I, of these systems. I think you'd be surprised. Most business solicitation email, all of our clients, for example, they're one, they're pretty good at this. They're pretty good at this. Two, I, they're pretty good at like what? Not writing email that doesn't get you, it doesn't get you flagged. No, it, they're pretty good at this in the sense that you're sending emails to people in your target market. Your value proposition makes sense to the people you're emailing it to. So it's very rare that if, for example, you were sending out an HR tech related thing, let's say you're doing a talent acquisition technology or something, I'm just making something uh -huh. up, and you're emailing talent acquisition managers about talent acquisition tech, that person is not like, this is spam. They're like, no interest for me, archive. They're not, they don't bring malice into their like spam marking. They're not, okay. I'm so upset. They're just like, oh, an email of someone trying to sell me something that's relevant to what I do, even if I'm not interested. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is Google's not the only game in town. So you might send out a thousand emails in a day, but maybe only 500 of them are to Google. So Okay. And so that's another you, thing you, I'm assuming that you work with them on to balance yeah, you, where sometimes it's going. You have to, sometimes you have to balance what you're going. And no, don't get me wrong. Cold email is annoying anyway. It's, I'm not here to tell you like cold email is great across the board and you should use it profitably and send as many as you possibly can. I think that just like with any other growth mechanism, whether it be telephone, cold email, advertising, and whatever, you have to try to bring as much humanity into your execution, everything as possible in order to not come off that way. But the, the sad truth or the good truth or the whatever is that it works. It actually is, is quite an effective way to mass introduce yourself to your target market if that's the mode of business that you're in. Must be. It, it must. I see it going out. I see people get results from it. It's a key part of how people are getting business. And I um, bet even in your own org, people have purchased something from cold email. I mean, you and I connected because of a cold email. I'm sure that we were introduced through someone who did some that. Way. You don't some think way. So? Well, we were introduced directly, but maybe how they got in touch with you was cold email originally, yes. which would not surprise me. But he, yes, No, but you know what? He, I, I don't, I can't tell the good stuff. You can't tell, is it real or not? Is it customized to you or not? I, I'm pretty sure that actually for him, it was customized. 
he happened to have emailed me today too. So it's hard to say, but every once in a while, it does absolutely work. And some of the biggest companies still use this kind of cold outreach to ask me for, to interview the CEO that hired them, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, it's effective. It's open. It's asymmetrical, meaning it's more effort to send the email than to archive it or see it or remove it from your inbox. So I think that there's a time and place for it for sure. All right. I'm, yeah. Let's close it out. Give me some tools then. If people are at the end of this interview looking, oh, look at this. Parker sent me an email, been lurking for a long time, and I responded, but I couldn't get back into it. This was in August. So August 4th, I responded, and then we didn't get a follow-up. August 7th, I, I, I followed up. No, August 7th, he followed up. August 16th, he followed up. I responded on the 22nd. Then I just dropped the ball. 22nd, he's back. September 6th, he's back. September 11th, he's back. September 21st, he's back. October 5th, That's... he's back. And then not only was I glad that he was back and that we we got to do this interview, he and I got on a call to deal with another issue and we've been texting. In fact, we texted today. So um, so yeah, I could see the- Parker's a great dude. He's a really good dude. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, he and I, we did a book club. We just read a, the same book and we we're going to meet next week to talk about it. He, you read- What's the book? You read- uh, Doppelganger Never heard of by it. Naomi Klein. What's it about? Naomi Klein's new book. Oh man, it's a dense thing. It's not just something I can say in one sentence, okay. but it's a, it's an exploration into the theme of doppelgangers when it comes to people and their mirrors that they create for themselves on the internet, like the internet version of Benny Rubin all the way through time, history, et cetera, et cetera. And in particular, Naomi Klein is a leftist thinker that people started to mistake for Naomi Wolf, which is another leftist thinker who is an anti-vaxxer and sort of all these other things that Naomi Klein is not. So she wrote a, a book exploring the idea of having this double on the internet that is not her, but... Why are you reading this? Why do you care? Oh, man, I, I, I read all sorts of stuff. Just I like, I like to yourself read. up to it. There's so much. There's so much information. I mean, I, I listen to a lot of music, classical music, modern music. I go to lots of concerts. I make a lot of music. I think a lot about music. I read poetry. I read novels. I read fiction. I read history. I read anthropology. I like, I'm not on this earth to build the biggest, most powerful agency in the world. I will be the next Elon Musk. Like this is a li living is a, is an aesthetic experience. It's about what's in front of you. What's good, what's swimming around your brain. I see. What are you eating? What are you doing? You know what I mean? I think business is great. And, and the thing that we all like about business is helping, I think at least helping other people achieve or solve problems that they're facing. Because if the problem is there, then a problem is probably real and you can sort of help them solve it. And it's a relatively nice thing to just be like, I'm big and strong and there's a rock in front of your car. I will move the rock. That's <laughs> how we feel. We're moving email rocks away from people's, their path in front of their house or something. All right, so let me close it out with this. Give me one technique for cold email that's working today. Oh, that's great. The bank shot. We call it the bank shot. What's that? Um, the bank shot is when you offer something that is undeniably attractive to your target market, that the pathway to get that thing is through an earnest conversation with you. So an example of that would be, would you run your own podcast? Hey, we have a podcast. It doesn't have high viewership, but we put a lot into it. We put a lot of effort into it. Can we interview for the podcast? We like to interview CEOs or whatever. They, but we'd like to do a pre-interview first to make sure we're aligned. Lo and behold, pre-interview call, you're explaining to them what your product does. We're this. We do this in this way. This is my stance. Da, da, da. A lot of times that CEO that you're going to be interviewing with, hey, that's interesting. I'll choose you to my CMO and you can talk to them about it. So that's a bank shot approach. Those tend to work pretty well because the value is sort of understood uh -huh. and it's not going to be boring. What's another example of something you could offer someone? So that's in the case of you have some sort of media thing. Yeah. Um, another thing that a lot of times do is, for example, a, a bank shot style approach would be, hey, Google just changed the rules. We do free trainings every week. We do them on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 3 to 4 p.m. You can join and you and your team can join. Just hit reply and let me know who's going to be there. I'll add you to the invite. Well, it's a cold email. It's opt-in. You're sort of engaging with them in a way. Another bank shot can oftentimes be the if the star of the show is going to be the one doing the calls. Oftentimes that's interesting. So, for example, if you wanted to do a big run, you want to increase your corporate sponsorships or something, or you want to get to a new tier of sponsors or whatever, 
you saying, I, I would like to talk to you myself about this mm -hmm. opportunity. This is about me. It could actually be very attractive for a VP of marketing or something or a CMO because they're not going to talk to some salesperson. They're going to talk to the star. So that could be very attractive. It just means you have to commit to a certain number of these things in order to make it you know, viable for you. I could see how this is harder, but it's good. Oh, shoot, I got to run. Let me close it out with this one. Jesse Puji, who previously founded Ampush and had been on here, Ampush was was ad buying platform and software. Sure, sure, yeah. He now created Gateway X, his collection of companies. He showed how he gets people to contact him and how he closed sales. And a lot of it was cold email-ish. Actually, it wasn't cold. It was warm. What he would do is he would say, who do I know in common with them? And then he would fire mm -hmm. off a message to the person who he knows in common with them and say, hey, do you know Andrew? And then you go, yeah, I just was interviewed by him. And you know what's going to come next. Jesse's going to say, could you make an introduction? Now, if you yeah. make an introduction, you get a way better result than if I just if he just reached out to me directly. I tried this to help book guests. I reached out to guests directly. Ah, it's okay. It's easy to just not yeah. respond. But then what I did was I reached out to people who know the guest, often not even as well as I do. And I said, hey, do you know this person? Can you make an introduction? And they did. And because the introduction came from someone else, it became, I guess, I don't know, there's now someone watching whether you're responding to Andrew, someone beyond Andrew, and helps tremendously. That is such an effective technique. I would love that yeah. to be systemized. In fact, we're, we're talking about Parker. Parker is Parker Olson. I've been talking to Parker Olson about this. There's got to be a way to just go into LinkedIn. I give you a list of people that I want, scrape some of their connections, and then through yeah. the scraping, get their email addresses using contact out, and then it's totally email. doable. And and I don't, I think that largely the size of the target markets of most SaaS providers, uh -huh. like doing a direct thing is so much more efficient. But most people are running multiple strategies at the same time, which they totally should. I think for key accounts, like that kind of warm thing makes sense. But for the large volumes of, of companies that people want to go after, cold. I mean, I, I think the kinds of volumes of, total adjustable markets that people have for their SaaS products. It's How many emails are they pushing out a day? A lot of our clients send 80,000 emails a month. Okay. Easily. 4,000 a day. It's like not even that much, not that okay. many in the things. If you have 50,000, 100,000 companies in your target market and there's three or four or five people at the company, you can see that the volumes can get really high. But they um, will do the bank shot and it still makes sense at that level? Well, that see, so then you get into how are you organizing the process, right? Okay. Like, for example, you might find that only one out of 10 of the pre-interviews actually go to the podcast. Why? Because, hey, we're trying to find a match here and I can see, you know, we it really starts the conversation in a way that a sales email wouldn't. Yeah. Okay. Like if you had said to me, hey, Benny, if you don't share revenue numbers on the call, I'm not comfortable interviewing you. Maybe that would have been a deal breaker. But at least like, we oh, would okay. have been connected, you're saying. And so right. it doesn't. That's right. All right. I should say I got to run. All right. The <laughs> website is senders.co and i want to That's thank right. gusto for setting this up uh, gusto.com slash m-i-x-e-r-g-y you'll love it you'll thank me all right bye everyone